Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2014 AWP conference in Seattle. The recording features Chuck Palahniuk, Monica Drake, Jess Walter, and Cal Morgan. You'll now hear Pamela Mills and Noreen Tomasi provide introductions. Welcome, everyone. I'm Pamela Mills, the Director of Development with AWP. Thank you for coming out this afternoon. I have just a few housekeeping things to remind you about, and that's the obvious. No cell phones, please. No flash photography. And after um, the session has ended, if you would allow the author's time to get to the book signing tables before approaching them, we'd appreciate it. So have a great session. Thank you for coming out. And now I'd like to introduce Noreen Tomasi the director of the Center for Fiction, who will introduce our authors today. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It's thrilling to see so many people here today. I thought there were about 11,000 people at AWP this year, but I'm told there are closer to 14,000 people. So that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, we're from New York City, the Center for Fiction, and for the last, this is our third year as a literary partner to AWP in this conference. I'm just going to very briefly, before I introduce the session, tell you a little bit about who we are. Um, the Center for Fiction is the only literary center in the United States solely devoted to the art of fiction. Um, you can find us at centerforfiction.org, which is chock full, really, of great content including essays and original fiction. You can also find us on Facebook and Tumblr and as Center for Fiction, that is Center, the number four, and fiction on Twitter. We present over 100 writers per year at our home in New York City, and you can see videos of all those events on our website. Everyone from Colson Whitehead to Elmore Leonard to Margaret Atwood, with lots of exciting emerging writers as well. We also give an annual $10,000 first novel prize. Um, we support all kinds of early career writers through fellowships. Uh, we have a writer's studio, and we do lots of other exciting things. So um, I encourage you to visit our website. And if you're in New York City, um, come visit us in our building. And I wanted to also let you know we have one more Center for Fiction event today, and that is at 4.30 PM. And that is a reading and conversation with Callum Toybean and Rachel Kushner. So please come to that as well if you're here. Let me start by saying that um, Chuck's longtime editor is not able to join us today, Jerry Howard. So instead, Chuck, Chuck, in his usual wildly inventive way, has suggested that author Monica Drake, who is a member of his writing group, um, join us instead, which I think will make for an even more interesting conversation. It will allow the panel to really dig into the editorial process, beginning with the process of revision that begins in a writing group like the one Chuck and Monica belong to, and continuing with in-house editorial exchange that takes place between an author, in this case, Jess Walter, and his longtime trusted editor, Cal Morgan. We'll be discussing the alchemy between creating such great works of fiction as Beautiful Ruins and Doomed, as well as Monica's novel, The Stud Book. This is more than just a conversation about the nuts and bolts of getting a book published. In fact, it's not a conversation about that. It's a look at how relationship affects the novel that ultimately arrives on the shelf. I just am very briefly going to tell you a little bit about each of the people up here with me today. Um, Cal Morgan is senior VP and executive editor at Harper and editorial director of both Harper Perennial and Harper Paperbacks. His list in, is an incredible list, notable um, for the wide range of authors he works with, which include Jess Walter, Kelly Oxford, Laura Redness, um, Stanley Crouch, Kate Zambrano, Tom Piazza, Blake, Blake Butler, Roxanne Gay, and a, just a really wonderful list, it, too long to name here. Um, Jess Walter, is the author of six novels and one nonfiction book. His work has been translated into 28 language, and his essays in short fiction and criticism and journalism have been widely published. His recent Beautiful Ruins was a New York Times bestseller, a New York Times notable book of 2012, Esquire's Book of the Year, and NPR Fresh Air's Novel of the Year. And he lives in Spokane, Washington, so he's a homeboy here. 
Monica Drake's newest novel is a stud book published by Hogarth. That was the imprint founded by Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf and recently revived by Crown. And I think it's pretty amazing that under the name of Virginia Woolf's imprint, there's as great and interesting a book as Monica's new book. And I especially like that Virginia Woolf's um, imprint is carrying a title called The Stud Book. That's really nice. Uh, Monica's early, earlier Clown Girl was a finalist for the 20, 2007 Ken Kesey Award for the novel. Um, through the Oregon Book Awards. Saturday Night Live comedian Kristen Wiig optioned the film rights for Clown Girl, and it won the Eric Hoffer Award for Best Micropress Title. Drake is the lead faculty, lead faculty in the writing program at Pacific Northwest College of Art, and she's a graduate of an MFA program herself at the University of Arizona. Um, Chuck Palahniuk, um, you probably know him. His 12 novels, Damn, Pygmy, Tell All, Snuff, Ran, Haunted, Diary, Lullaby, Invisible Monsters, Survivor, and Fight Club have sold more than 5 million copies in the United States alone. And some of you probably know that Fight Club was made into a movie. Um, um, he is also the author of Fugitives and Refugees, both published as part of the Crown Journey series and the collection of essays, Stranger Than Fiction. His newest book, Doomed, continues the afterlife adventures of Madison Spencer that began in Damned. Um, so I hope um, you will all buy books of all authors that are on the stage today. At the end of this session, there will be a book signing right outside the door, books for sale and a book signing. The way the session will go is we'll have a conversation and then we'll take some questions from the audience, and then um, we'll move outside where you're all going to buy so many books. Okay, thank you. Okay, I think rather than um, beginning with just a linear approach, moving from a writing group to what happens in house, I'd like to begin with a question that I think is important in both the writing group and um, in the author-editor relationship, and that is how do you develop the level of trust that allows you to take seriously and work alongside another person um, in the very early stages of your work? And so I wonder if Chuck, you could talk about that first, Chuck and Monica. I would say at least in three ways. And one is in recognizing the authority and the skill that the other person has in listening to the work and in contributing to the work. And with Monica, it is, it almost never happens that she doesn't have something really brilliant to say about the work in its early drafts that I would never have recognized myself. And so she, she proves her authority, she proves her value by recognizing these things and making these contributions and being able to articulate them. Because most people, the people you don't want in a workshop, are people who say, you know, I just didn't get it, or I didn't like it, or I liked it, but I don't know why. Monica can articulate what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And she's someone that's worth stealing from. <laughs> so you want to surround yourself with the most clever, most insightful, most honest people so that you can constantly steal their best stuff. Sounds like a good idea. Speaks for itself. <laughs> Number three, uh, that they have a memory of your past work and that as you bring something in over years and years sometimes, they can hearken back to something that you brought in in 1995, something that you yourself have forgotten about, and they can link it back to this thing that you're working on now, and that they have this kind of accessible inventory of every idea that you've brought in for years and years, and you realize that when they bring these things up, they're demonstrating this, this focus, this concentration and attention that they have. And they become kind of this resource for bringing you back to ideas that you've since forgotten about. Um, so proving that they're articulate, that they have the skills by demonstrating skills that are worth stealing, uh, 
and by proving that they're listening and that they're remembering your work ongoingly. Mm -hmm. Is that the same for an editor, the relationship between an author and an editor? Yeah, I realized when Chuck was speaking, I'll have nothing to say. Um, because <laughs> it is, uh, no, I think it's very similar. And the, the, I want to start almost with the third point, which is I think when I started out as a young writer, I was so full of ambition directed at nothing. You know, it was, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but that really meant just wearing like a corduroy jacket, you know. And, um, <laughs> beyond that, I didn't, I didn't know what it was that I was going to write, but I was pretty sure it was going to change the world. And as you start to focus on what that ambition is, it becomes its own sort of narrative. And um, I, my favorite part of the process is sending Cal a manuscript and saying, you know, um, sometimes I'll say, all right, you need to sit down with a cup of coffee. You can't take any phone calls. You know, um, I need you to have 72 straight hours. And other times I'll just say, I give up, take a look, you know. And, uh, and the editorial letter back from him reminds me that he is as aware of what I'm trying to do as I am. And it's, sometimes it's, hit, it's Cal who names the thing I'm trying to do. And then we can go back and make sure that I've done the thing I've named. Um, you know, the, the revision process, I have early readers, too, that I show it to, and they, there's a very different kind of trust. Um, but I, I, I also, from the beginning, started out saying, I used to have a sign above my desk that said, the pros from Dover, which is from MASH. And I was to remind myself to treat myself like a pro, um, not to use my editor or my agent as a therapist, um, as a friend, not to send them four pages of a, of a novel and say, what do you think? Do you think this could be great? And so I like it to be done. Uh, and when I turn it in, then um, that part of the process where we start to really refine what it is, yeah, you trust their intelligence, um, how well read they are, uh, and their, that sense that they know what it is you're trying to do and can help you get there. Monica, were you a member of the writers group um, with Chuck from the beginning, and um, I'm just curious about the genesis of that and how you um, began to trust yourself to speak up and to critique really honestly. You know, I, 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 was a, I have been a member since the beginning. Um, we met through another uh, writer who was leading a workshop, Tom Spanbauer, um, along with Susie Vitello, who's in the audience. And, um, you know, that was a long time ago now, and we, we started back then, and it was, it was great. It made the whole workshop process just made writing this really exciting and, and wonderful thing. And then I left to go to graduate school, and so I experienced a different kind of workshop um, at graduate school that's based on, you know, bringing people together um, and paying a lot of money. And, and <laughs> I mean, just to be frank, people were competing to try to get the few scholarships, and, and it put attention on workshop. Um, and, I, and I finished uh, graduate school and went back and um, my workshop in Portland with Chuck and Susie were, and some other people were, was still meeting. Um, so I had um, kind of two kinds of workshop experiences over a handful of years. And I just want to say this idea of trust in working with uh, writers who are not, not aiming for a degree, just really trying to make good work, there's a different kind of, of trust, an open-hearted willingness, and an you have to like each other's work to keep coming back. There's no tangible reward of a, a degree or maybe a famous author who's leading the workshop who might like you, right? It's just building it between yourselves, kind of bringing it together that way. So, um, you know, being in workshop with Chuck, the reward is just going back in and bringing my work in and hearing his work, right? Yeah. Oh, and another aspect is uh, the good-natured aspect of competition, that when Monica brings in work, which is almost every week, that is drop-dead funny, that makes everyone laugh and laugh and laugh, nothing pisses me off more. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, if she can go there, if she can go there, then I can go farther. I'll make them laugh harder next week. I'll get her. But it's, it's been a 20-year yeah. good-natured competition. Yeah. And in uh, reading Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, so much about uh, the gift of a talent is about not commodifying it, not sort of paying money to learn it. And our, what we created in Workshop is much more about kind of being a gift to one another. I think that's true. And, and there's a permissiveness to it, too, in that good-natured competition. When Chuck brings in some stuff that's pretty 
pretty crazy. It gives us permission to say, hey, you can break down those doors and, and, and what do you, how are you going to respond to this? You know, what are you going to bring back next time? Yeah, yeah, Carol, I was wondering from the editor's point of view, how do you know that it's an author you want to work with other than, you know, you've read the author's work and you think the work is wonderful, but are there times when the work is wonderful and you decide, no, I'm, it's not the right author for me? What gives you the sensation or the level of trust to let you know this is an author you want to work with and you want to work with them through, you know, a career? If you are lucky, uh, at the very beginning of the process, uh, if, if I get a manuscript on submission and I read it, this just happened last week, and I, I read it and I fall in love with, for me, it's usually the language, first of all. Some editors are absolutely transfixed by plot. I um, am happy to work with plot, but I'm transfixed by language. And so if I read uh, a manuscript that I know is captivating to me and surprising to me on every page, that's the beginning of knowing that I want to work with somebody because it's somebody who, who devotes that level of intense attention to every uh, squiggle on the page. And then the thing that furthers that um, sort of convincing process is getting on the phone with the author and starting to have a first conversation. And in that conversation, uh, I tend to be very broad. And, and after sort of talking a bit about what I admired in the book and, and uh, draw, trying to draw the author a little bit about, uh, out about what they were trying to do with, with the book, I will sort of shamelessly start asking big embarrassing questions like, uh, you know, what, what do you want your greatest book to be? And what do you want to do with your career? And whose career out there in the world do you admire? And, and for me, it's much less about you know, career in any kind of professional or, or financial sense than it is about starting to know the narrative that Jess was talking about, where you, you know, you were aware of your, of the sense that you had ambitions before you had necessarily worked out in your mind what they meant. And I don't think any of us ever completes that understanding of what our ambitions are. And certainly the, the best writers that I've worked with, a great part of the joy of that relationship is seeing their ambitions change from book to book. And that's been the story with us. I mean, you have just built higher and higher, higher Fenway green walls out there for every new book that you've written. And, and uh, uh, my watching that has been uh, you know, one of the great rewards of the whole thing. Yeah, can you respond to that, Jess? Because you did start with Cal writing one kind of a book, and your work is, um, all your books are beautifully written, but they've really evolved in a certain way, in a kind of unexpected way. Yeah, I don't, uh, when I set out to write, I, I mean, in some ways, Beautiful Ruins was the first book that I started, but I don't know that I had the chops to complete it when I started it, and I don't have an MFA, so I felt like with my first novel, I was teaching myself how to write a novel, and I chose a form that I thought would, would be um, accessible for me because I'd worked in, as a police reporter, so I wrote a crime novel, but I wrote it as um, a... Uh, structural and thematic allegory for T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And I was really shocked that it wasn't the New York Times Sunday book review cover um, review that Sunday. Um, that instead it was like, this is a pretty good crime novel about a serial killer. And like, they're totally missing the point. Yes, there are some dead bodies and there's a serial killer. But um, uh, so I was sort of stunned to have been, to put it, be put in this category as crime writer, mystery writer when it wasn't really the thing I thought my ambitions were. I love those kinds of novels, and I still tend toward noirish things sometimes, and, um, you know, and I, don't, I, I, I don't think there should be genres in a perfect world. But to, I, I was sort of surprised to, to be there, and then, um, you know, what's the old saying, you eat one lousy foot, they call you a cannibal. <laughs> no, you, uh, you put one serial killer in your novel, they call you a crime novelist. So, um, so yeah, there was a bit of a journey, I guess, getting back towards some vision of what I wanted to do. But we, it took two or three books to accomplish that, and Cal was there every step of the way with my frustrations and saying, you know, well, um, all we can, and, and really all you can do is write the best book you can, and all you can do is write the next book you want to write, and the next book you want to read. And Cal was so great at... Um, as those books came in, not, n other people would say, why are you switching genres? Why are you all over the place? Cal would just get excited. You know, I, the, 
when Maxwell Perkins sent back his long note about everything that was wrong with The Great Gatsby, the first line was, it's a wonder. And um, to get a note back that says, this is great, now here's what we can do. Um, to me, that's where the relationship really starts to build. You trust that, um, that complement as much as you trust the notes that follow it. And you know, every book proved out where Jess wanted to go and where I think to some extent even your instincts were, were drawing you in terms of what the, you know, what the attention that you were paying to the characters and the way the storylines were being shaped. And we had one uh, funny dramatic moment where after the publication of your third book, and I think we were already working a little bit on your, on your fourth, uh, which, which really was the dividing line between the third novel still something of a, of a kind of a crime novel, mobsters and, and cops and stuff, but, but uh, to my mind, entirely a literary novel. Uh, and the fourth, which was incontrovertibly a literary novel, uh, just went and did the awkward thing of winning the Edgar Award for the best crime novel of the year. <laughs> and, and got up, and here I get to get a laugh that he got last time, he got up and to accept the award very sheepishly and said into the microphone, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was, you know, at that point we knew that that third novel was called um, uh, Citizen Vince, and then the fourth novel, The Zero, ended up being a finalist for the National Book Award. Uh, Which happened about six months apart. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I had, had four people at a reading and slept in my car and um, checked the next morning after sleeping in my car, got a phone message from Harold Augenbrom in New York and saying, this is Harold Augenbrom, you're a finalist for the National Book Award. And I immediately thought, which of my friends has a 212 area code? <laughs> I was so sure it was a joke. But, um, but yeah, it was a, that was sort of a nice moment, you know, uh, and, and to share it with, I mean, Cal and I have done seven books together now six novels and a book of short stories. So um, you really have someone along the way who's who really has shared all that with you, you know? Uh, and that, that, it's remarkable. I, I feel like he celebrates the successes as much as I do uh, in some ways. I wanted to ask you, Chuck and Monica, about, Chuck sent me the um, list of who is in the writing group, and it's an amazing group of people. and and um, some pretty dark times over there at the writing group. <laughs> pretty funny as well. I think it's, it's the, a group of writers who, you know, write some dark work, some incredibly hilarious work. But I wonder, does that, is that purposely done? I, um, and how are you raising the stakes for one another all the time? You spoke about this a little bit before. But do you, there's a sense of competition, a healthy competition. You know, are you um, saying to each other, you're not going far enough, you're not going far enough ever? There might be some of that, pushing, pushing each other further with, with ideas in, an, in a wonderfully inspiring way. But I think there was another part to your question, which is that we're all working in different, very different kind of, I guess, genre is mm -hmm. the word. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Ch Chelsea Kane is part of the workshop, and she's a thriller writer. Um, a very different kind of work than, say, what I'm, what I'm doing, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, everybody just has such great insights. And when you work together as long as we have, you kind of know um, what, what direction people might take, but then they'll still surprise you with their specifics. Uh, sometimes before I bring something in, I might run through my mind, what's Chuck going to say? What's Chelsea going to say? Uh, and it helps me uh, think about the work. But then they'll still always surprise me with you know, brand new stuff, so. Mm -hmm. I think it's really beneficial to have that mix. How often Chuck? do you meet? Every week. Every week still. Every week. Wow. Uh -huh. Chuck said something to me at the beginning while we were waiting for the session to begin that I thought was so interesting, and that is um, contrasting the writing group experience a little bit with the in-house experience that whether it's because of online access or or the information load people have, or what's going on in the world, I don't know, but people are willing to go further. You can go further in fiction. You can be more extreme. Um, what the reader will accept and embrace is very different than it was 20 years ago, and that's something that maybe you can work with in a writer's group is not always so easy to work with uh, within a house. Can you talk a little bit about that? One of my favorite stories, uh, evolving stories, is one year I toured with a, a short story called Guts that made hundreds of people faint. <laughs> and I read it at Columbia, and my editor and his wife, his very elegant wife, 
They're right there in the front row. And part of the way through the story, a young man started to stand and he collapsed and he went into convulsions. And I kept going and another young man stood, collapsed. (laughs) And as he lay on the floor, sort of twitching, he was just making these animal sounds, these horrible guttural sounds. And my editor, Jerry, comes to the edge of the stage and he waves me over, really angry. He goes, you stop this right now. You don't read another word of this. And Suzanne, his wife, shouts, is Random House liable for this? (laughs) (laughs) Paramedics came in this huge auditorium full of people and they took these two poor young men out. But two years ago, I was in Austin at the Festival of the Book and I did a big nightclub event. And backstage, I heard Jerry telling the story of that Columbia reading to Aaron Morgenstern, who wrote Night Circus. And Jerry was telling that story, saying, it was so great, this kid (laughs) fell down. He had convulsions. He puked. He almost drowned in his own puke. (laughs) It was so fantastic. But at the time, it was not. It was terrifying. And so what I kind of like is, with Jerry at least, kind of proving to him that you can go places that are beyond his comfort zone. And in workshop, when you go to those places, I find that you have to make a case for it. Monica will not allow me to be racist. That's true. That's true. (laughs) I had a short story a couple weeks ago in which I referred to some black men as Leroy's. And I thought it was a kind of innocuous way of making sort of secondary characters, just calling them Leroy's. And Monica said, no, you can't do that. Don't, that's, that's, uh, that's cheap, you're not doing that. So I didn't do it. <laughs> Chelsea says I can't say fag. Chelsea says I can't say homo or fag. I let him say fag and homo. I, I said that's okay. <laughs> but everybody in workshop has got one line that they won't cross. Mm-hmm. And by saying you can't do that, they force you to do it in a better, more inventive, less ready-made, cliched way. And so, you know, I can get around Jerry's reservations by being more clever. I can get away, get around Monica's by being more clever. They hold us to a kind of higher standard of, of seduction. We can't be kind of cheap. Yeah, I think that's true. We're accountable to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like everything is pretty perfect in your writing group and and also in your relationship, Cal and Jess, just it's, you know. I'm not speaking to him right now. (laughs) (laughs) All flowers and happiness. Let's start maybe with you and Jess, Cal. Aren't there times when you just want to kill each other? Aren't there times when he gives you things you hate or when he delivers something to you and you think, what the? No. That has never happened. Or we, we, there have been times where I simply can't once or twice where I simply couldn't understand why a point that I went wanted to make to Jess, he he was looking at me like I was crazy. I was I was sure that it was just some sort of mental block of yours that I that I you know you hadn't gotten past it. The the one that sort of comes to mind is, is a fairly recent one. And it's really sort of almost maybe the only editorial, and it's barely editorial, but the editorial uh, argument we've ever had, which was about one word. Uh, and that was originally the first word of the title of Beautiful Ruins, which uh, when he handed in the manuscript was the. Mm-hmm. The book was going to be called The Beautiful Ruins. And I thought that was fantastic. And then you had a change of heart somewhere along the way. And I yeah, thought you were I, out of your mind. I think I accidentally left the the on when I turned it in. And it started showing up in ad copy and things as The Beautiful Ruins. And I said, no, it's not The Beautiful Ruins. It's just Beautiful Ruins. And yeah, I, I, that, the other part of that trust is, and we, haven't, we really haven't had to do it very often, where we can't convince one another one way, you know, the, and I love the idea of, of excuse me, of uh, defending yourself, you know, the group has, you have to be able to defend these things, and so I went, we went around and around on why it is not the beautiful ruins, it's this state of ruination that I'm talking about, you know, and um, which, you know, am I going to walk around and explain to every 
person who buys a book. The reason it's called Beautiful Ruins is because I'm talking about a general state of ruination. <laughs> so, um, but it made yeah, you all know. Yeah, it made sense to me, and um, uh, and I did win that one. That's After right. I don't know, two or three months, I backed down mostly because it wouldn't fit on the cover in the right way. Well, and I, and I would do this thing where I would poll people, and and every, and everyone who got back to me said beautiful ruins, or I didn't tell them that, or I didn't tell Cal about them. So I just ignored everyone who said the, and said, look, you know, yeah. I sent it to this person, and they said, A hundred percent of the people who agree with me right. are agree on my side. Me. Right, exactly. I did know that Cal said, after two or three months, I backed down. Yeah. Yeah, he, so. I, I kept putting beautiful ruins on the versions I would turn in and on everything I did, and he kept putting the on it, and we just sort of, it was very passive, actually, you know? it's like, it's like a couple who's been married for a long time, you know, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to see your sister for the weekend, huh? I don't think so. <laughs> Are most of the um, disagreements you have over language, over words like that, not over structure, no, over Early class? on, like every author, I really thought every publicist in-house should be on my book and that not enough attention and time was being given in some way. And Cal has to bear the brunt of those, but he's, he's on my side in them. I think that's where most of the grief comes from. And we're on the same team in that. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we will debate uh, certain points. Often what usually happens is Cal will tell me this part isn't working for this reason. He's great about the this reason. You know, this, I, I don't feel like we're grounded with this character in the right way. Uh, and, and, it, and he doesn't usually offer solutions. He just says, this is the reaction I'm having at this section. He's very specific about it, though. So then it's up to me to figure out what I'm not doing that, um, that isn't getting that across. But no, I, I don't think we've had any big knockdown dragouts. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly, I can't remember if we have. I may have blocked them. I would remember, because I would have been the one knocked down and dragged out. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> no. I, I wonder if the experience is different for you, Monica, and um, for you, Chuck, when you have a long-standing writing group and you've already worked and worked and worked the, the book within that writing group, and then you are with your editors at Hogarth or at Doubleday, and so you've vetted and vetted it already. And now are the disagreements and conversations differently weighted for you? For me, it overlapped a little bit more than, than that linear sort of progression. You know, I, I'd start getting comments back from an editor, my editor at Hogarth, but it, things were still coming into workshop. So it gives you sort of a backup place to check, double check mm -hmm. what you think you're hearing. They work together. It works okay. together that way. And how about for you, Chuck? I really hesitate to answer this honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, because if it is a podcast, Jerry might someday see it. <laughs> And I've developed a strategy of writing something in that is just too much. So that later when Jerry comes to me and says, you cannot have these people making soap out of liposuction fat. That's just too distasteful. I can say, well, how about if they don't cut off the police commissioner's testicles? How about that? <laughs> and so by writing in these kind of sacrificial lambs, You know, okay, so what if uh, Leona Helmsley isn't butchered by the psychopath in the fifth act? Okay, you know, Jerry will go for that, and I'll get what I want. Uh -huh. I didn't want her there anyway. <laughs> so it is kind of this little dance where I find that uh, if I, I can get away with what I want, if I offer up things that I'm happy to get rid of. Mm -hmm. But more and more, there is the, the, the kind of court of popular opinion, mm -hmm. where recently I had a story in Playboy called Cannibal that's going into a collection next year. And when Jerry read it, Jerry said, is this story what I think it's really about? If so, I think it's absolutely appalling. And we can't <laughs> have it in the collection. And I sent him the first 100 tweets that came in response to that story. And they were all so excited and so over the top, you know, loving the story that Jerry had to kind of collapse and say, okay, it's in. And when I was doing my book, Snuff, Jerry had said, we are not publishing a book called Snuff about the making of a snuff film. 
but I just happened to get invited to speak at uh, Carnegie Hall to children, to high school students. <laughs> and I told a bunch of really distasteful stories, and they laughed, and they roared, and they roared, and in the front rows, there were these blind Amish children. <laughs> they all held hands because they were blind, and they came and went holding hands, and even they laughed. <laughs> and as we were leaving, Jerry said, okay, we'll do the book. <laughs> There's all these different kind of negotiations and dances and ways of kind of defending what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, we'll try and get that cut out of the podcast. Please, yeah. <laughs> Is there ever a point where you, any of you feel a writer no longer needs an editor? I, I ask this because I see some big books that feel like they don't have an editor's <laughs> hands on them. And I... I'm of the camp that thinks anyone, you know, yeah, let's edit Middle March. You know, any book can be edited. Do you ever, do you ever feel, uh, I'll reach a point where I don't need an editor, where that relationship isn't important to me? Um, maybe I won't start with Jess on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Monica? I, I am certainly not there. You know, I can't imagine that, actually. Uh, I, I think that's part of the process, to work with somebody, somebody else. So. Uh, at some point, you want a sounding board and some input, and no, I can't imagine it. Mm -hmm. It's a short answer. Okay. Chuck, yeah? Uh, years ago, I was talking to Douglas Copeland, who wrote Generation X, and he said that Generation X was such a success that for his next five or six books, they, they really did not edit them, and he really regretted that. He, he really wished that, especially for those sophomore subsequent books, he had had a fantastically strict editor because he thought that he got away with less than he should have. Mm -hmm. um, can, I, can I tell a, a heroic story about Generation X? Please. A, a, a heroic editor story. Uh, I was at St. Martin's Press when Generation X was published. What most people uh, don't know about that book is that uh, it was sold to St. Martin's Press as a nonfiction book about Generation X. And then Doug went away, away, and his editor was Jim Fitzgerald, who's a guy I worked a lot with who's now an agent. Uh, and Doug uh, sold the book off a of proposal, went away for a year or whatever it was the time that he had to do. And uh, then when delivery day came in, he showed up and he said, oh, well, whoops, I, I wrote a novel instead. Is this OK? <laughs> uh, and uh, St. Martin's could easily have canceled it. Uh, and Jim said, no, not only will I not cancel it, this is so much more brilliant than what the thing that I thought I had bought that he put heart and soul into publicizing that thing and, and, and pre-publicizing it in a way that was, in my mind, the first time I had ever seen what we now think of very commonly as sort of viral marketing that didn't really exist back then, but what it, cons what it, it consisted of, in Jim's case, we didn't have the internet yet, we didn't have, what we had was fax machines. And, Jim, and, and, and Jim's, Jim used to come in every weekend for a period of about a month and he had Xeroxed up a big letter X like this on, uh, to f fill the sheet of paper. And he spent the entire weekend just faxing that <laughs> to every fax number of every media person that he could think of. So they would all come in on Monday morning, and 16 people would have a big X in their fax machine. And that was the, you know, that was the thing that began people talking about Generation X. And then I think he followed up, and they said Generation X, et cetera. And he knew it had worked when he saw Ad Age talking about Generation X as, as a phrase. He, he knew all of that had paid off. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Which, which is another answer to the question. I mean, it, it isn't just the work itself that needs editing. You have a champion who, at the publishing house, who does those kinds of things, who pushes, you know. So, but besides that, I, I can't imagine, um, and I've read those same novels where I've thought there really needs to be an editor here. And I've known writers who've gotten to a place where their editor is 24 years younger than them and studied them in school, and they're not likely to make some of the changes they need. But I think we also always need writers. And I've gotten probably less likely to show my stuff until I have a full draft. I was in a writer's group, and I, one other writer and I sort of escaped from it, and, and, we, and he would be my first reader. And uh, still is a, a wonderful English professor in Spokane named Dan Butterworth. And then I would show my wife, who was an editor, 
for the newspaper in Spokane. She was an editor also. So you, having those early voices, you, it is a communicative thing you're trying to do. I, I actually had to stop showing my wife when I gave her the early draft of a novel and I said, here you go. And I went downstairs and got a glass of water and I came back up and she was reading Bel Canto. So, um, <laughs> so now she doesn't get to read anything. <laughs> as good as Bel Canto is, I would much rather have found her in bed with Ann Patchett than with the book. So. <laughs> I know there aren't very many um, editors at big houses in New York who are at AWP this year. So I wondered if you could give us a little, just a little sidebar of your perspective um, about working as an editor in a big house and also about what you see going on in the world of fiction right now, especially how it relates to, you know, boundary breaking. Uh, Cal, um, in New York probably goes to more readings and sees more unknown writers and reads more work, unknown work than anyone I know, and you'll all be sending him work tomorrow, right? And he's going to kill me. But I just wondered, first I would like to hear from Cal about what you feel about the state of fiction today and where it's going. And then I'd like to ask that general question to all of you, actually. I've been in publishing for uh, a little more than 20 years, and, and during that time, in the first half of or so of that time, uh, publishing looked to me about the way uh, publishing looked in all the books that I read when I was growing up that made me want to go into publishing, which were biographies of Thomas Wolfe or Hemingway's letters or what have you. And, and it all seemed to be uh, very cloistered and uh, very much a game of a few houses and a few individuals at those houses who had you know, great strong one-on-one -on -one relationships with their authors. Uh, and then when the internet came in, and especially in the past five or six years when a sort of concatenation of factors gave rise to not only the internet, but the availability of small press publishing, I think, and if we were all sitting around a massive coffee table together, I would want to know what all of you guys think about this. But I think that it has fundamentally changed the nature of the writing that we're seeing. Not just the amount of it, and not just really even the sources of it, which is a big important thing that we're seeing writing from, I think, more diverse voices, writing that is not just the material that makes its way through the very narrow bottleneck from MFA programs through literary agents to uh, a few editors at a few houses, but uh, that is coming into realization in cities, all, in, all, cities and towns all over the country uh, through a much more diverse kind of network of capillaries that is bringing work into people's hands that would not have surfaced 20 years ago. Uh, to me, what it is made for is a lot more uh, diversity of thinking about what a book is. Things that are 68 pages look like fantastic books now in a way that they didn't before. Uh, for what you can do in a book. Uh, Chuck, I think your uh, experience seeing that people are reacting to more challenging stuff in, a, in an open way is something I'm seeing as well, and I, I attribute that in part to the fact that it could be that the old model was protecting us from challenging work in a way that it might not, you know, shouldn't have necessarily. And I think sometimes the stuff is raw. It does not necessarily get the same kind, same, you know, and I don't mean that as a qualitative thing, but just the same nature of editorial uh, working through before it hits pages uh, as it might have in the old model. But to me, as, as an editor who's sort of reading that stuff, looking for people who might have interesting careers, that's exciting because I'm seeing it in its rawest form and I'm seeing also people reacting to it in its rawest form. The, the people I know out there in the world who are excited about young writers today they're excited about material that is being worked out almost in real time through uh, small press publications, through stuff that's published online. Uh, and we as readers get invested in those writers very early on because of the chances that they're taking. Mm -hmm. Jess, do you have any? I mean, I, I, I had a long short story that I don't know I could have published anywhere except Byliner, which I think Chuck also, I think we had Amy Grace Lloyd was our, we had the same editor at Byliner, yeah. And, um, and there's a, there are these places, the Atavis now, where you can publish novellas, um, which a while ago they were dead in the water. And um, I remember when I finished a novel at one point and I had an agent years ago who said, you know, 
this is a really thin novel. Everyone's buying thick novels this year or something. She said something <laughs> like that, um, like it was a hemline or something. And, um, uh, and I hear the, all, the sort of you know, hand-wringing and it's the end of the world. And I wrote a zombie short story um, out of my loathing of zombie short stories um, called Don't Eat Cat. And the whole reason I wrote it was to build to this rant that this character has where he says, you know, imagine you were born during World War II or, um, you know, during when they were feeding priests to lions or, you know, when they were in slit, when you were, people were born into slavery, you know, this is the end of the world. Fuck you. It's always the end of the world. And, um, and I think that about publishing sometimes. Yeah, we're writing into headwinds all the time. It's changing. It's not what it was. It's, um, it's hard to sell books. The, you know, di digital books have changed things, but it's kind of always been that. There's a probably fake golden age of, of, being a novelist that we still hold up, Fitzgerald and Faulkner and Hemingway, and, mm -hmm. um, and maybe, and I don't know that that really existed. They probably thought, this sucks, everything's changing, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know how to do this, I have to blog all the time, you know? But, um, you know, whatever, I, I mean, if you read Fitzgerald's letters, all he wanted to do was be extravagantly admired. That never changes, you know? It's, um, uh, the, but, but I think the device changes, the way it comes out, it doesn't change what you do. You try for something with a platonic pureness of heart and you approach it, whatever it is, like a religion, and the rest either takes care of itself or doesn't, but your, your you know, kvetching about it doesn't change that either, I don't think. I can say a few things to that. You know, in the, the future of writing, my intention is to keep writing novels, is, is my, my thinking, but I also just designed and launched a, a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in writing, where I'm working with um, young people, and I've been uh, teaching in art school for uh, 13 years, and I just love what they, what they bring to it. So when I designed this program, I tried to leave a lot of open space to see what people who are growing up now, uh, you know, what their direction for what they call writing is. So uh, I defined writing as broadly as possible, um, down to the point where if you want to project one word on the side of a building, we count that as writing because it has a word in it, right? So it's, it's really broadly defined. And I am having a great time uh, seeing what students bring to the idea of writing, including um, one thing that blows my mind is this idea of writing for, for multi-screens, right? They actually watch more than one screen at a time, so it just shifts every element of the narrative, um, how they're working together and how they're not working together, and uh, even just things like Google Earth technology in terms of narrative structure is just amazing and exciting. So I feel like I'm just on the edge of watching where, where students take writing. Um, it's really, it's really fun. Mm -hmm. so. Back to you, Chuck. Um, you know, one of the changes is, is audiobooks. The, the, the books have to be, in a way, more performed now. And in our group, we got really bored doing book events. Chelsea came to me and said, uh, another reason not to podcast. Chelsea had been sent on one of these junkets where you have to have these round-robin dinners with all these tastemakers and mavens and critics and reviewers, and between every course of the meal, you know where this is going. You have to switch seats and make small talk with another person you'll never see again. And Chelsea takes me aside and she said, I wish I could just give them all hand jobs under the table. <laughs> That would be far more interesting and less taxing. <laughs> it's so boring to do that standard book tour where you go out and you read the thing and you're that thing that's withheld and then it's presented and then you sign the thing uh, and then you are admired in that Fitzgerald way and then you go back to your hotel room and drink everything in the mini bar. <laughs> because you have to sleep for four hours and do the whole thing again the next day in Baltimore. <laughs> So we thought, why not, as a group, not just be an editing group, but be a marketing group? And let's tour the way a band would tour. And last year, we toured as a group doing adult bedtime stories. Because we all recognized that our love of storytelling came from being read to as children. That luxury of being performed to by your mother or your father that gave you that craving to be able to do that performance yourself. And we staged these enormous events in nightclubs and college auditoriums with a lot of shtick. And everyone wore their pajamas 
and if you brought stuffed animals, you got prizes. And it was about looking like idiots and giving people permission to look like idiots. And that aspect of having to write toward the performance, I think, is something that's growing, whether it's audiobooks or whether it's taking the work on the road and having to present it. But I'm seeing that uh, the marketing side of things is having to get really creative. In the same way that bands are now making their money from touring instead of from royalties, you know, maybe authors will be making more of their money from touring and performing rather than just waiting for that, that check to come. Which is a, it's sometimes a difficult thing. You imagine, would Don DeLillo perform? You know, would, uh, I mean, you worry about some of the work coming up. And authors will ask me, should I tweet? Should I do this? Should I do that? And I think if it's something great and cool that you, want, that you would do anyway, you should do it. You know, um, those other questions of what you have to do to get a book out there, those things don't, they aren't the same as writing sometimes. And it's, and it's worried me, you know, would, would we have discovered Cormac McCarthy if he was just holed up on a ranch, um, not tweeting and not, um, do, not doing the dinners, probably not giving hand jobs under the table, you know? So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, they're striking that balance. And I mean, it's, it, it, it's difficult for writers to know how much of that they have to take on themselves. In the, in the best instances, though, I think, I mean, it's sort of following up on what you're saying, do it if it feels like it's sort of organically coming from, from the book. I, I remember a few years ago, I was publishing a, a book by Blake Butler, and I was so absolutely captivated by the language that I just, I, I found myself walking around the office just wanting to read passages to people because I loved hearing them out loud so much. I have his new book in my bag, and I'm, I'm having the same, I was sitting on the airplane, you know, pro practically bothering the people next to me, wanting them to, to hear this. But then what we ended up doing out of that was that we did a uh, marathon reading of the entire book over four nights with 30 different readers, one night at the Center for Fiction. And it was super self-indulgent of me because I just wanted everybody to hear this book out loud. But there was something to me that was very right about it because it's a, it's a language that sounds beautiful and, and it probably is intuitable or, or sort of absorbable in a different way out loud from how it is on the page. And I just, I wanted people to have that experience. Uh, and there, he just has so many writers who are fans of his and friends of his that they all sort of left to sign on and, and, uh, and be part of it. It's so interesting to me that your, your answers to the question relate in a certain way in that as the technological opportunities um, increase and the, and the field widens in all kinds of ways, both as what you have to do as authors to market your books, but also, you know, um, what, how you can make work in all kinds of interesting ways with the new technology. It, it, you all come back to storytelling and telling stories as a key component um, and your love of telling stories as central to that. So the technology maybe has freed us in a certain way as much as it's a a huge burden sometimes for a writer. It's freed um, us in a way to hear stories and experience stories in all kinds of ways and to get closer to that. What Chuck is pointing out is that fundamental connection where a writer is standing up in a room and you're all in your pajamas and you're telling stories. That's so interesting. What I'd like to do now is open it to the floor for some questions. We have until 1.15. Can I ask you to do me a favor? If you come up to ask a question, could you please just ask a short question? And, um, you know, because I know that this is so thought-provoking and, you, you know, you're thinking and there are lots of things you might want to say, but the writers um, will be at a signing table outside for that. But if you have a question, that you would like to ask, please go ahead. And there's one right there. The yeah, the question is really what was to Cal, and it was really what it, what is the line that you know? At what point do you decide I just can't work with a writer anymore? It's just not going to work. I may be super too much of a sort of you know I'll lay down for for anything, but I I, I have never actually had an experience where a writer, if I felt like they were in earnest about what they were doing and were just simply gobsmacked by some problem, whether they you know, ended up sort of shouting at me about it or sending me 25 drafts or making changes in fifth pass of the book, if that's 
what it takes for them to get the book done in the way that they want, I'm, I'm, I, I sadly will stay with you and hold your hand through the, through the rest of that process. Uh, this is why I look like I haven't slept in a week. But I would say as much of that anxiety and uh, fear and anger and everything that, that you want to put into an email every day, you try to put back into the work. Um, I, I have a whole lot of emails with subject lines that say things like, the rant I would send if I was going to send this rant. Um, and then I don't send them. You know, the, writing the email really helps. And then I realize if I, if I send this to my agent, I'll just, you know, he's got however many clients he doesn't need to hear that I had a bad reading in Petoskey, Michigan. You know, he doesn't care. Um, so I, I, I don't send a lot of emails. And, uh, and then, and really just try to put all of that into the work. That's, that's the best thing you can do, is have such great work that the editor will put up with all sorts of shit from you. You know, if your work's good enough, he'll be mowing your lawn, and you would never <laughs> mow my lawn. I, I feel bad, so. you, didn't, you didn't tell me about Petoskey, I feel bad. Yeah, <laughs> it was terrible, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the work itself will, will uh, excuse all sorts of bad behavior if you put enough into it. I see a hand over there. I'm repeating the question, and that is, if you, when you're forming a writing group, say you have people that you really like and, and respect and, and think are terrific and think are thoughtful people, but you don't like their writing so much, should you have a writing group with them? Chuck? <laughs> right, is, is that person here? We should probably. <laughs> the world is so connected. <laughs> yeah. Um, in our group, we have a kind of a spectrum of people who write brilliantly. Monica, brilliant. You learn something every time she brings something in. Um, and Chelsea, and Lydia, and Susie, that, that are really uh, always a constant contribution. And then we have other people who are, have been working on the same project or the same series of sort of rotating projects for years without completion. And every once in a while, one of those people will be just a bad writer, just a bad writer. And so if you can create something like that where you have both the good and the bad, you can still learn from the bad. I've learned fantastic things from bad writing. Mm -hmm. Nothing is funnier than bad erotic writing. <laughs> <laughs> to tell the truth, a sexual abuse memoir, memoir written really poorly is really funny. <laughs> Heartbreaking funny. Because it's somebody pouring all of this power, all of this pain into something that they don't have the, the skill to execute. And it comes off as funny. And you're learning something from these people about the nature of writing, even though the writing is bad. So if you can have a spectrum of very good writers, and even a couple very bad writers, that's worth having. Mm -hmm. But do you have to? Does that level of trust have to expend, extend to the bad writers too? I mean, are you? Can you kick people out of, or, or not work with people because you don't trust their intent or their comments or their pettiness or? You know, so far. Has that happened? The model for our group was Tom Spanbauer's group, and Tom is such a giving, generous person. And he's so empathetic, he's so caring, that we've just always tried to kind of evoke that feeling of Tom's. We all try to mimic how Tom is in workshop. And every once in a while, we have gotten kind of a, a, a difficult person, and we typically lie to that person and say we're disbanding. <laughs> and then we all start meeting a different night. The old, the old fake your death. Uh, can, I, can I just add, if you have, if you have good friends who, are, who, are, who you like and, and respect in all these ways, but you don't quite like their writing, it seems like you should be giving them advice on their writing, right? I mean, bring it up. I don't know, just a thought, but yeah. The, 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 the person I ended up with, we were the two most serious people in the writing group. Everyone else would show up without manuscripts or not having read the manuscripts or... Oh, not really, I, I didn't really get it, that would be the answer, you know. So it was pretty easy to sort of self-select and say, you know, let's, we did expand the group and then the two of us just kept sharing manuscripts. We have time for one more and I see all the way over there, yeah. Uh, yeah, Chuck, you said you, uh, you've done a lot of public presentations before, been on a lot of panels. I was just wondering, you have all these questions, do you have any questions for me? <laughs> <laughs> 
all do, but you <laughs> No, but no, you asked, really, it should be for Chuck. Maybe we should leave that for the signing table, Chuck. Yeah, you know, that's just to save your dignity, because I don't really, you know, I, I would ask you something really, really personal. Okay. <laughs> all right. Oh, you know, in Chicago, not even Chicago, in what's outside of Chicago? Milwaukee. Skokie. Skokie, <laughs> where the flagship Barnes & Noble is. I did a huge event in a Barnes & Noble. They put me in the children's department. They had a bazillion people. I told an outrageous, offensive story. And during Q&A, there's this one guy waving his hand. I should have known it from the way his face was. <laughs> Angry. And he goes, you know, I got one question for you. He had this heavy Scottish accent. He goes, so tell us, do you masturbate to Brad Pitt's picture? <laughs> <laughs> and this is in front of hundreds of people. And he, nobody is that clever. So I just said, no, next question. <laughs> and I went home all the way back to the hotel thinking I should have said, no, I masturbate to your mother's picture. <laughs> no, I masturbate to my bank statement. <laughs> so do you masturbate to Brad Pitt's picture? <laughs> Thank you all so much. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.